So Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi, uh, right at the north part of the country. Luke's gospel tells us that he was uh, privately with his disciples praying in some place. And one day Jesus asked them a question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, we all know that the Son of Man was Jesus' favorite designation for himself. The disciples understood that when he was talking about the Son of Man, he was talking about himself. It's a, a title with messianic overtones, even though it, it means a human being. He asked him this question, who do people say the Son of Man is? I don't think Jesus was just curious to know, like a politician doing some, some you know, polling research. So I wonder what people think about me. and I just, I, Not that it really matters to me at all, but I just like to know. It would be interesting. Of course, Jesus knows very well what kinds of things are being said about him. People were talking about nothing else. Wherever he went, he caused a great stir. There were many opinions, many people offering their ideas about who this, this man was that was doing these miracles, feeding the 5,000. It must have caused an enormous stir amongst the people. And everyone was talking about this in the marketplaces. And Jesus asked his disciples, his apostles, who do people say the Son of Man is? Who do people say that I am? And of course, we know that Jesus he's leading them on to a searching question. That's why he asked this question. The disciples, they, they kind of don't know. They, they mention a few of the popular ideas that were circulating concerning himself so what do they say? Some people say, well, you're John the Baptist, resurrected. Other people say, you're Elijah, also resurrected, brought back to life in this day and age. And of course, you could understand why they said that, because there's a prophecy in the Old Testament that Elijah would come, would be sent before the Messiah was to come. Some people said he was Jeremiah, one of the other prophets. And you can see why they had these opinions, because there's something about Jesus there was something about Jesus which, which brought to mind all these prophets and all these men. There was something similar about Jeremiah, which Jesus also shared. And there was something similar about John the Baptist to Jesus. So people were talking about all these ideas. But have you noticed that all these people, all these opinions, fell short in one important area? They expected someone to be raised to life and brought back from the dead, a prophet or a great man from from Israel's history, to serve God in his generation. And none of them were willing to countenance the idea that Jesus could be a unique um, person sent from God, not just another prophet, not even a prophet brought back to life for a particular purpose, but a unique person, a divine person and no less than the Messiah himself. That wasn't one of, the, one of the opinions that was floating around. This man is the Messiah. They don't mention that. They mention all these dead people that somehow they believe might possibly have been raised up again. The Apostle John comments in his gospel. He says something very, very searching. He says this, Though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. So we have this this appalling situation in which the Lord Jesus, the creator of heaven and earth, comes into the world he created, comes to his own people, the Jews, and yet, by and large, they fail to recognize him. And that was to have enormous consequences, tragic consequences for the Jewish people. 
Jesus says in Luke chapter 19, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. This is talking about the fall of Jerusalem, AD 70, when that city would be destroyed. Many people would be massacred. And Jesus connects that with the rejection of him, his rejection. People failing to recognize their Messiah when he came to them. I want you to notice that all these opinions about Jesus were complementary and positive. There were, of course, those who opposed him, the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him. They would have happily killed him had they had the chance. But all these opinions that we we read about here of Jesus being a prophet or being Elijah or being Jeremiah or somebody else, some great holy man from the past, they're all complementary, aren't they? They're positive. They recognized in some way that he was a righteous man sent by God. And yet they deny his, his messiahship, his uniqueness, his divinity, and his eternal nature. They believe that he must be somebody who's been resurrected. And there's a warning here for each of us that it's possible to have a complementary view of Christ, a complementary opinion about Jesus, and yet still not grasp his true nature and his identity and his character. And this is more important than you might think. If we were to ask this question, if you were to go down to, to Churchill Square tomorrow and ask this question to people, you would come up with a, a myriad of different opinions and ideas about the Lord Jesus. And perhaps even on a Sunday morning, if we were to ask this question to the great congregation gathered here, I'm sure you'd have different opinions. There are those who would say, of course, that he's, he's a, you know, a great man that we can learn lessons from, a bit like a guru kind of figure. There were some who would say that he was you know, a prophet, and no more than a prophet, but yet a great prophet and worthy of honor. Some would say that he's, he's a moral teacher, uh, a wise man. And some, of course, would say that he's, he's no more than a baby in a manger. And that's where they're happy for him to remain. A baby, a harmless, innocuous baby that doesn't trouble them, that doesn't trouble their consciences, that doesn't require any response. And they might think that they're paying Jesus a great honor by holding these kinds of opinions. Well, I've got nothing against Jesus. I rather like Jesus. He's a great man. He says some wonderful things. Do to others as you have them do to you. Who, who can disagree with that? It's a wonderful thing. And yes, it's, it's entirely possible to have a positive opinion about Jesus and yet be entirely wrong about his identity. And that is a very, very grave danger. Coming back to the story, Jesus turns that question onto his disciples. This is, this is really the million-dollar question, isn't it? This is the most important question. This is a question that echoes through the ages. And this is a question that whoever you are, sooner or later, will come knocking on your door to confront you. And this is a question that you must answer, and a question upon which your eternal destiny hangs. He asks this question, doesn't he? Who do you say I am? He says, but what about you? Who do you say I am? They hadn't been expecting that, I'm sure. What would you say if you, if, you were to, if you were asked that question? Well, Simon Peter answers in verse 16. I think he's probably a spokesman for the whole group. We can't be sure. I don't think he was the only one that understood this. And we don't know whether he was hesitant or whether he was bold, but he, he says, look at verse 16. Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, Messiah. Messiah and Christ are the same thing the son of the living God. It's a wonderful answer, isn't it? Potent with meaning. 
glory. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. As, as divine undertones. Christ, this, this is not just a prophet, but he's someone unique and special, sent into the world. We don't, I don't think Peter fully grasped or understood what this meant. We know from the next section that he didn't understand many things about the nature and purpose of Christ's ministry. But what he, did, what he did know was this, that Christ was not just a prophet, not just a holy man, not just a rabbi, not just a teacher. But he was, in some sense, the unique son of God and the long-awaited Jewish Messiah the son of the living God, the God who interacts and acts in the lives of men, unlike all the idols in Caesarea Philippi, which was a very pagan city, full of shrines and lifeless statues and all these things. And for a Jewish man to to state this so boldly, it was really a remarkable thing, an amazing thing. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What was so significant about Peter's um, confession on this occasion? It wasn't the first time. The apostles had realized this. Cast your mind back to the book of John, the gospel of John. And the gospels are real history, so somehow they all fit together. It can be difficult sometimes to work out the chronology of the story. But in the, in the beginning of the book of John, we read about Nathaniel, one of our, the little-known disciples and yet chosen by Christ, sitting under his fig tree. And when he meets the Lord Jesus, he says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. So he also makes a similar profession of faith when confronted with the majesty of the Lord Jesus. Back in John's Gospel, we read about Peter's first encounter with Jesus when his brother Andrew took Peter and said, we've found the Christ. And he brings Peter to Jesus. And actually, Peter is then told by Jesus, you are Peter, you will be Cephas. You're, you're Simon, you'll be Simon, son of John, you'll be Cephas, you'll be Peter. That's the first time that he indicated he would have this name, which means we'll come to that later on. A few, a few chapters ago, we read about when the disciples, um, when Jesus walked on the water, the disciples worshipped him and said, truly you are the son of God. So I think this, this, this opinion, this, this conviction had been forming in their minds up to this point. It wasn't that one day they were sitting there completely sceptical and then suddenly it had come upon them. God had been working in their hearts. They'd seen the miracles. They'd seen the evidence. And they were coming to this point of settled conclusion about the Lord Jesus. And perhaps that's the difference. Before, they cried out um, excitedly, impulsively, when they'd seen um, the miracles, when they'd seen Jesus in his glory. They said to him, you know, you're the son of God. But now this was in the cold light of day, an opportunity to come to a settled conclusion and confession about the lordship, the messiahship of Christ. I think that's why this is a high point of the gospel, because Finally, they've come to this conclusion. They didn't say to Jesus, give us half an hour to go away and discuss it like a jury. We'll come to a conclusion. We'll let you know what we think. They, Peter spoke for the whole group. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. What does Jesus say in verse 17? Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my father, by my father in heaven. So Jesus commends Peter's confession. He uses a word, um, I think it's makarius in Greek, which is the word that's used in the Beatitudes, um, the blessings, blessed are the peacemakers and so forth. He says, blessed are you. How fortunate are you? How much favor have you received from God to know this truth? It's very important to remember that Jesus here is not conferring a blessing on Peter. He's not saying, because you understand this, I'm going to give you a special blessing. 
the blessing is that Peter has understood and comprehended and has had revealed to him the nature and identity of Christ. That is the blessing. Why does Jesus seek to, why does he see fit to, to mention this, to, to tell Peter where this comes from? He says, he says this is not re- revealed to you by flesh and blood. No human being revealed this to you, but by my Father in heaven. Let me say this, there are things that people can do. There are things that humans can do. And there are things that God can do. Human beings, some of them anyway, can give birth to human babies. 50% of us can anyway. Human beings can tell people about the Lord Jesus. We can proclaim the gospel. We can certainly do that and we're called to do that. But no human being can bring about spiritual rebirth in the heart of a person. This is something that only God can do. To bring new life, a heart of flesh where there was a heart of stone before. To bring spiritual comprehension and understanding. This is a miracle of God. A new creation. And as I said, we can tell people about the Lord Jesus, but to apply this to the heart of a person... So that it becomes not just a kind of creedal statement, not just a confession, not just the words that you speak, but something to do with the heart, understanding, comprehending Christ in all his glory. That is a work of God. And no flesh can do that. No person can do that work in the heart of a person to reveal the Lord Jesus in this sense of understanding and comprehending who he truly is. I remember when I was a student, I... Some of my friends and I from the Christian Union went around the halls of residence at the university, knocking on doors of people. I think it was about four o'clock in the afternoon. I knocked on the door. We were doing a spiritual questionnaire, asking people questions about the Bible, what they believe, trying to witness to people. A guy from my course called Aaron, not this one, opened the door. I think he was a farmer boy in a, in a, in a kind of um, check shirt, and he, he looked like he'd just woken up. And we said to him, oh, hello, Aaron. He said, well, do you think Jesus is the son of God? That wasn't the first question. That was one of the questions. And he said, oh, yeah, I, th- I think I'd probably go along with that. Yeah, I think he's probably, yeah, why not? He's the son of God. Aaron has some kind of church background, you know, nominal Anglican, something like that. That's, that's, this is not what Peter's doing here. He's not just kind of saying the words. Just saying, oh, yeah, well, yeah probably, probably you are the son of God, and that's fine. He, he comprehends, he understands what this means to some extent, not, not fully, but he's grasped. There's something very special about this man, and he knows it's going to make a difference to his life. Plenty of people will confess Jesus as the son of God and say these words, but this is to do with the heart. And God is the only one that can change that heart and give people the ability to understand this and comprehend this. That's why we give him the glory. That's why we pray to him to do that work that only he can do. We can't save a single person. We can tell them. We can plead with them. But only God can change the heart of a person to reveal the nature, the identity of Christ as as the Son of God and Messiah and Saviour of the world. And let me say this as well. If you're a Christian here tonight, you're a Christian because God has set his favor upon you, shown mercy to you and given you the revelation of his son in your heart. And that's very humbling, isn't it? And that's very, very encouraging. Why, why, Lord, did you do this to me, for me? Who am I that you should do this for me? Because I wanted to, because I'm a gracious God and I'm, I'm choosing a people for myself and opening the hearts of those who are closed and dead in their sins, and giving them the gift of life. 
That's what God does. That's what we should pray for this Christmas time and this new year, that the Lord would open the hearts, reveal this, this idea that, that Jesus Christ is not some irrelevance in your life that you can just ignore most of the year, but rather he's the most important person in the history of the world. And how you need to address this question and make sure you give the right answer. The whole course of your life and your eternal destiny depend on this, getting this right. Second point, second question. What was the rock upon which Jesus would build his church? So we look at verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. This is only one of two places in Matthew's gospel where the word church, translated church in English, is used. The actual Greek word is the word ecclesia, which is where we get the word ecclesiology and such words. Um, In the Septuagint Old Testament, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this word was used for the sacred, called-out assembly of God's people. That word was used to to describe a gathering of God's people assembled together, a holy and called-out people. Sanctified, that's what sanctified means, called out to be holy and distinct. In the New Testament, in in Roman times, this word was used to describe an assembly of voting citizens coming together. But Jesus here foresees that he would have his own company, a blessed company of saints, of believers, of faithful people belonging to him, his church. And of course, he's foreseeing um, this this establishment of this this body, this this movement, this church that would, would grow to spread across the whole world and is still spreading today. And obviously, he uses a building analogy. And if you're building a building, what you do, if you want the building to last more than 100 years, you put down a solid foundation. And in those sandy climbs, you, sandy places, you'd put down a foundation on a rock. An immovable foundation. That's what you need to keep your building standing strong. And Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. And I'm going to build it upon this rock. The question is, what is the rock that Jesus had in mind? Well, there there are three main answers. The first one is that Peter himself is the rock that Jesus had in mind. And you'll find many people in the world who believe this, and some probably take this very far and say that Peter was some kind of exalted figure and that, you know, he he and his successors should be um, almost venerated as very, very special people. That's the first answer, that Peter himself was the rock. The second answer, which many Protestant people would take, is that the rock is not Peter, but it's the confession that Peter made, that, that Jesus is the Son of God, the, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. That's the rock upon which the Lord would build his church. And there's another school of thought which says that the rock is neither of those two things. The rock is actually Christ himself, the foundational rock for his church. And so well, it's impossible that Jesus would have a man in mind, a person, to be the rock of his church. It must be he himself. But I think, and you can disagree with me here, and you can shoot me down in flames, but I think that the natural reading of this seems to suggest that Peter is in some sense the rock that Jesus has in mind. I'll explain why, and uh, we can talk about it afterwards. Peter was a man of several names. You often find that in, in Bible times, a person's name was very significant. Many of the, uh, the apostles had different names, and uh, some of them were given new names by Jesus. And... Um, Peter's original name, the name on his birth certificate, the name his mother would have called him, I think, was probably Simon, as far as I can tell. 
I don't know how the Jews said that. His father's name was Jonah or Jonas. So according to Jewish custom, he would have been called Simon, the son of Jonah, or Simon bar Jonas, bar meaning son. That's what people that didn't have surnames like we have, so he would have been Simon, the son of Jonas. When Jesus met Peter, he gave him the name Kepha, which is Aramaic, which is the language Jesus would have spoken in common everyday use. He would have, it means rock. It's just the word rock, Kepha. That is transliterated in Greek as the word Cephas, the name Cephas. That's why you read in the New Testament Cephas. That's from this word rock. Greek, the, the Greek translation of, of Cephas, of rock, is Petra. And I was thinking about this. It's a place, isn't there, in Jordan where they filmed uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that great big rock city it's called Petra. I imagine it's because it's just a big lump of rock. It's well-named. That's what, what it means. So Petra is the Greek word for rock. Kepha is the, the Aramaic name for ro- word for rock. And Petros, get this, Petros is the, the masculine equivalent of the Greek Petra, which is feminine, which means rock. So Petros also means rock, but in the, the masculine form. And Peter is the English translation of the word Petros. Okay, got that? So Simon, Cephas, Peter, they're all the same person. Simon was originally called Simon. He was given the name Peter or Cephas by Jesus, meaning rock. Have you noticed how how Peter honors Jesus by by saying it, by declaring his his parentage, his fatherhood. He says, you know, you're the son of the living God. He talks, he makes that connection with Jesus and his father. And he talks about his role, his identity as the Messiah. And Jesus, in a way, returns the compliment, the, the favor to Peter. It's not a favor, it's not a compliment. You know what I mean? He returns the honor to him by talking about his father, his parentage, and his new identity, and his role in the church. That's why he says here, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man, but my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, you are rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Let's assume that Peter is the rock that Jesus has in mind. Now, of course, it's possible to take this far too far and to to abuse this. But it could just mean that Peter was appointed by Jesus to have a very important leadership role in the early church. Another indication of this would be at the end of John's Gospel, where um, Peter has that dialogue with Jesus, and Jesus tells him to feed my sheep. And you could say, well, in a way, it seems that Peter did have a significant leadership role in the life of the early church, particularly before the, the, the New Testament was written, and there was a lot of confusion and debate. It was necessary to have a man and men, the apostles, particularly Peter, who would be able to bring that together and lead the people. But we should not overemphasize Peter's importance. When the disciples asked Jesus, which, which of us is the greatest in the kingdom, he doesn't single out Peter and say it will be you or any of the others. He actually says the one who serves most will be the greatest among you. You read the book of Acts, the history of the early church, we see that some of the other, other apostles were quite prominent as well. James and John, the pillars of the church, they were also, you know, very pivotal in the life of the church. And in fact, Peter 
actually was, was criticized by Paul. He was called out by Paul for his hypocrisy, unchristlike behavior. So he's far from infallible. And if you read through the book of Acts, after chapter 15, Peter seems to fade from the scene. Actually, we don't read much more about Peter. Paul seems to come to prominence in the church. And there's no indication whatsoever that there would always be a kind of global church headed up by some kind of Peter figure. And, you know, when, when, when this figure died, somebody else would be raised up to take that position. There's no indication of that in Scripture at all. But I do think, in another sense, Peter was a foundational rock for the early church. Think about these men. They were, they were appointed by the Lord Jesus to lay a foundation of doctrine, authoritative doctrine for the early church, not just for the early church, for the church in general. Ephesians 2 verse 20 says this, You are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens of the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, who Christ Jesus himself is the chief cornerstone. So even Paul says, in some ways, the, the, the cornerstone is Christ, but there's a foundation of the apostles and prophets. And I take that to mean that the apostles were given a very special task in formulating the doctrine of the, of the church, writing the New Testament, inspired by the, by the Holy Spirit, to, to bring these words, to record them, to write them down as, as the sole guide for Christians of all ages. After this unique group died, the New Testament was compiled, the scriptures were compiled, there was no need for any more revelation. And these foundational men, including Peter, laid that foundation as God led them. So we, we today, we don't have any apostles. We don't go to refer to a man somewhere when we have a dispute, and that man gives us a kind of authoritative word. We go to the word of God. We sit down together. We open the word. We, we pray about it. We ask God to teach us from the writings of the apostles, those foundational men who, whom God used to write down the word of God. I think, in a sense, whether we say that Peter was the rock of the church, or whether we say this confession that Jesus Christ is the Savior and Lord and the Son of God, whether we say that's the confession, that's the, the rock upon which the church is built, or whether we say that Christ himself is the rock, in a sense, all three of those things are true, in a sense. Yes, of course, as I, as I just said, the apostles were used to lay a foundation of doctrine, to lead the church in the early days. And yes, it's very true that this, this confession, this truth that Christ is, is the Lord, is, is the distinctive feature of the church. Without, without this, you, you can't be part of the church. And all Christians everywhere declare this truth and joyfully declare this truth, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, he's the Son of God, he's the Messiah. And that is the foundation of our teaching, our belief, our doctrine, our practice. And of course, in a much deeper sense, the Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation, the true foundation of his church. You know, unshakable, immovable, upon which all is built. So that was the, the, um, the rock. So I think it's probably, he's, has, has Peter in mind most, that's, that's how it naturally reads to me, but I'm not going to go to the stake over it, but... It certainly doesn't mean what people make it to mean, that Peter's some kind of exalted figure. He's a fallible man, but he was raised up with the other apostles to lay a foundation for the church. Next question, we're running out of time. 
What does Jesus mean when he says, I will build my church, the gates of, of Hades will not overcome it? I, had to, I really had to wrestle with this to understand this. This is horribly misused by many well-meaning Christians, this doctrine. They rip it out of its biblical context and, and seem to suggest it's, it has to do with binding demons and evil spirits and things like that. I don't believe it means that from the context. But let's look at it together. What does it mean? The gates of Hades will not overcome it. Well, in many versions of the Bible, this word is translated hell. The gates of hell will not overcome it. And that has a slightly different connotation. Because when we think of the gates of hell, we think of an onslaught of demonic activity, spiritual forces of evil attacking and assailing the church of Jesus Christ. And let me say this, that's certainly true. There is a spiritual war. The church of Jesus Christ is engaged in a spiritual battle. The forces of evil, the devil oppose the church, oppose Christians and oppose Christ. That is certainly true. But if we take this word Hades, we need to unpack this a bit because Hades was, for the Greeks, the place of the dead, the realm of the dead, the place of departed spirits. So when you die, they didn't have a concept of heaven and hell. You went to be in Hades, in the grave. And of course, the Jews had their own version of this, Sheol in the Old Testament, the grave. Just a place where souls go. They didn't have this doctrine that we have, developed doctrine in the New Testament of judgment and the life to come. What are the gates of Hades? Why does, he, why does Jesus say the gates of Hades? What purpose do gates serve? So you've got a garden gate, probably, and it opens and shuts. But imagine a walled city, a walled citadel in the ancient Middle East, a strong, impregnable city. And, of course, it has gates. I was, I was up one of my, my favourite places, the city of London, the financial area. I like walking those old medieval streets. Oh, there's Bishop's Gate over there. There's Broadgate. There's Ludgate. All these old gates that, that were there in Roman times and medieval times. A city has to have walls and it has to have gates for it to be secure. So when, when, when Jesus talks about the gates of Hades, he could be talking about just using this as a euphemism, a kind of metaphor for the strength of a city. Imagine Hades like a strong, fortified city, a powerful city. But gates have another function as well. They also provide access in and out of a city, don't they? You've got a walled city, unless you climb over the wall, so abseil down the wall, or tunnel under it, you can't get get around it. You have to go through the gate to get out of the city. But it's a bit strange, because Jesus says the gates of Hades are trying to overcome the church. The implication is they, will, they, they won't overcome it, but they're trying to overcome it, and they will, they will not succeed. So how can gates try to overcome? Gates are, are not, not offensive, they're defensive, aren't they? You don't use gates to attack, they just sit there and they defend the city. So how, how on earth can gates be used in this context? So I really wrestle with this. I thought, what is, is there any significance in this, or is it just a euphemism? Like, you know, corridors of power. We don't literally mean the corridors, we, we, we mean something, doesn't it? Is that what Jesus means? But I think from the context, Jesus means not that these things are defensive, but he's talking about access into the city. Turn with me to Isaiah chapter 38. Just quickly, if you would. So this is King Hezekiah. 
in verse 9 and 10, let's read verse 10, he says this, I said, in the prime of my life, must I go through the gates of death and be robbed of the rest of my years? Gates of death, gates of Sheol, gates of the grave, a very similar picture to the gates of Hades that Jesus mentions. King Hezekiah described his own death, as, as a natural death, as going in, into the gates of Sheol, going into the gates of the grave. He's talking about access, entering a city, a city which is called Hades, a city where the dead go. Imagine, if you would, that death is like a powerful walled city with gates, or one gate, and that gate is wide open, the jaws of death. And all of humanity is heading towards that gate, the gates of Hades. And sooner or later, every single person will have to cease their human activity because they will pass through that gate and they will not be able to come out of that gate again. They'll be trapped inside that city and that will be the end of them. Of course, we know about the judgment, but let's just leave it with Sheol, the grave. They go to the place of the grave of death. In a sense, these people are overcome by the grave. The grave is victorious. The grave claims its victims. It's got a great big gaping mouth and it sucks them in, in their millions. And we might not like to talk about it, we might not to dwell on it, but you know, we have to face up to our, to our mortality as humans. All of us are going to go through that gate at some point. And it could be that Jesus is saying that unlike any human being, his church will not have its activity cut short by death. All human beings must come to that point where your your life will finish one day. But he says, my church will not be like that. My church will not not go through those gates. My church will prevail. My, My church will overcome. It will not be overcome. That's the most natural understanding that I can, can take from this. I don't think it has to do with somehow Christians, like, you know, some kind of divine battering ram, breaking down, assaulting the gates of hell, like some charismatic say. I don't think it means that at all. I don't think it means that the church is taking a right kicking, you know, from the, from the evil one. That's certainly true in some ways. I think what it means is this, that Jesus says, my church will not be overcome, it will not go through these gates. It will continue to grow and prosper and proliferate and spread and nothing will stop it, unlike any human life which must come to its end someday. In the light of this optimism, Jesus says, you know, the gates of of Hades will not overcome my church. You can see how Peter got confused in the very next section, which we're not reading today, when he said, you know, when Jesus talks about his death, he says, Lord, this will never happen to you. One minute you're saying that your church will, will not be overcome, then you're saying that you're going to be killed. One minute you, you accept my, my confession that you're the Christ, next minute you're saying you're going to be put to death. Something doesn't add up. But of course, the death of Jesus was necessary as part of God's plan to be the Messiah that he chose. Think about Jesus. He was, he was not overcome by death, was he? He was the only man that ever lived that went through those gates of Sheol, of the grave, of Hades. He went into that city. And in in a sense, he emerged. He came out of the gate again. He conquered death. He he got the keys of death and Hades, as Revelation 1 says. He came out of there. He conquered death by his resurrection. And because of this, because he he went to the grave and came, came out again, he gives the right to all who believe in him 
to also have that same right that when we go through those gates, we're all going to die physically one day. It's not the end for us because instead of eternal death, we will have eternal life in Christ. And we'll be raised up again on that last day to eternal life with the Lord. It says this in Hosea chapter 13, quoted in the New Testament. I will deliver this people from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues or victory? Where, O death, is your destruction? And Jesus clearly says that, in a sense, he's overcome the grave. And he's overcome the sting of death and the victory of death because he offers Christians eternal life and the hope of the resurrection. He's taken away death's ability to have the victory over his people. Moving swiftly on, I'd love to talk about this more, but time's moving on. Question number four, what are the keys to the kingdom of heaven? Jesus says here, in verse 19, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. We've got this very kind of ridiculous picture, haven't we, of Peter being some kind of doorkeeper or porter at the gates of heaven with a big key letting people in. You know, St. Peter at the, the pearly gates and all that stuff. I think what Jesus is doing here, he, he says that Peter is the rock of the church, the foundation of the church, in a sense. And he sets out some of what that means. So he's kind of explaining to Peter what, what this looks like in practice. He's talking about the responsibilities they have as apostles. It doesn't mean that Peter would be able to decide, I think, I like this person, I'll let them into the kingdom of heaven. I'm going to confer salvation on them, forgiveness on them, but not on that person. It doesn't mean that at all. In a sense, the, when he talks about the keys to the kingdom, he could be just talking about the great commission which the apostles were given to go and preach the gospel, make disciples of every nation. In a sense, that's the key, opening up the gospel, opening up the way to the kingdom, opening up the gates to the eternal city by the preaching of God's word. In a sense, that's what all it could mean, the keys to the kingdom. And that's a stark contrast to the Pharisees. Jesus said, you shut up the door of heaven in men's faces. You yourselves do not enter. You will not let others enter who are trying to enter. The Pharisees were shutting up the door through their, their deceit and their false teaching and their hypocrisy. And Jesus says, you are to open that door through the preaching of the word of God. But I think also it could be talking about this. So in the book of Acts, we read about Peter's special commission to to preach the word to different groups of people, in a sense, for the first time to open up the kingdom. So in in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And in a sense, he opens the door to the Jewish people through the preaching of Christ crucified and risen. Christ is Lord. He preaches. 3,000 people are saved. And they enter through that door, which has been opened through the preaching of the word. Then Acts chapter 8, Peter preaches again to the Samaritans, and many Samaritans believe he opens the door to the Samaritans. Then Acts chapter 10, we've got the whole business with Cornelius, the, the Roman Gentile, and Peter is commissioned to go to him and open up the door to the Gentiles of the gospel by preaching the word of God. So Peter had that very special honor of doing those things, and he was aware of it himself. In Acts chapter 15, he says, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. So I think it's very true to say that Peter did have a special task, and the other apostles too, in opening up the gospel to these different groups in a symbolic way. There's another meaning as well about the keys. So if you give the keys 
the keys to your house to somebody. It's a symbolic act, isn't it? It means that you trust this person to look after your house, to be a steward. So imagine a rich man with a big house, and he, he doesn't want to busy himself with you know, ordering food for the house and stuff like that, so he gives his steward the keys to the house and entrusts him to look after it. And perhaps the keys here have not, not much to do with access and opening doors. Perhaps it's more to do with this idea of, I'm giving you, Peter, the key and the apostles to the church to look after it in my absence, to govern it well, to set down principles, to set down doc- doctrinal foundations for the church, to be a kind of steward over my household. So perhaps that's what the key means here. And the apostles were certainly given this task in the early days in the absence of Jesus, filled with the Spirit, to lay that foundation. The final question tonight, what does this bit about binding and loosing mean? So if you look right at the end here, this is quite, quite um, mysterious um, on face value. I'll give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Once again, people rip this out of its biblical context and say this is talking about binding demons and um, things like that. It's not talking about that, I don't think, from the context. The Jews were very used to this idea of binding and loosing. The rabbis of the day would always be asked questions about different matters, and the rabbis were able to give answers which were referred to as binding and loosing. So the Jews would have a dispute about something. They would go to a certain rabbi. They would ask him, say, Rabbi, what do you, what do you think about this? And the rabbi would say, this is not right, according to the law and the prophets, or this is right. So in a sense, they would bind something, they would forbid something, or they would lose something, they would allow something. The Jews were very familiar with this concept. It was about making authoritative judgments about certain situations in the life of the community. And in a similar way, the apostles were given divine authority to make judgments pertaining to the life, the rules, the boundaries, the practices and doctrines of the church. So an example of this is the Council of Jerusalem in Acts 15, where the apostles had this big debate about whether the the Gentiles needed to be circumcised before they could become Christians, and they decided they didn't need to be circumcised. That was an example of the apostles exercising this kind of binding or loosing authority to make an authoritative decision which would be binding for the church. They wrote these down, and this becomes the New Testament, the word of God, upon which we stand, upon which we govern our churches. It wasn't a question of God saying, you know, make up any rules you like, and I will bless you, and I'll just go along with what you say. Actually here, the future perfect tense is used. So when it says here, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, it actually says in, in the Greek, whatever you bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed in heaven, implying it's already taken place. It's not just the matter of the apostles just making up stuff. Oh, we think this is a good practice for the church and God blesses it, whatever it is. It's a sense that God himself, by the Holy Spirit, is stirring up his apostles and leading them by the Holy Spirit to formulate this doctrine, the practices, the boundaries of the early church and the church universal. As he leads them on, he's, he's made this decision already. The disciples, the apostles are ratifying this decision, this, this, um, this thing that God has, has set forth before them in their hearts. So it was, it was God's will that the, the, the Gentiles did not need to be circumcised. And God made it clear through these wise men. And they set this down. And this became the doctrine of the church. 
in Matthew 18, we're going to come to this after Christmas probably, we see an example of this. Jesus talks about church discipline. He talks about binding and loosing in that context. Let me just read what I've written for the sake of time about that. In Matthew 18, Jesus talks about binding and loosing in the context of church discipline. Churches are called to discipline unrepentant Christians, even put them out of the church if necessary, based on the authority of God's word. We do not ourselves determine what's right and wrong. Rather, on the basis of God's word, we recognize and proclaim what God has already determined to be right and wrong. When we judge on the basis of God's word, we can be certain our judgment corresponds with the judgment of heaven and is approved by God. We have the sense, don't we, when we, when we baptize someone, when we marry, marry two people together, we understand, though, that something spiritual is going on. It's not just a human act. God recognizes something. Something is approved of in heaven when this happens, if in a biblical marriage, in a baptism, when the sacraments are administered in the church. We are doing this on behalf of God. We are governing his church. We're seeking to do, to, to do this work faithfully according to the word of God. As I said here, when we seek to administer our churches according to biblical principles, we are doing it in such a way that our actions will be sanctioned by God and will find approval in heaven. And that's why we have in our church creeds and, and confessions and membership and all these kind of good things and rules. We don't just have a kind of do as you likey kind of culture in the church. Because we stand on the, the, the teaching of the apostles, the foundational truths of the gospel. We seek to govern our churches, however imperfectly, in this way. That's why we have rules. That's why there are boundaries in the church. And in a sense, we are binding and loosing when we enforce these apostolic truths. We need wisdom in doing that. Another example of this binding and loosing, this is right, right at the end now. If a person comes to us and says, you know, I don't believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't believe he's the Lord at all. I believe he's an imposter. He's a fake. He's a fairy story. I'm an atheist. We can say with all authority that to that person, your sins are not forgiven. You are not a child of God. Well, how dare you say that? Well, we can say that because the word of God says that. When we say that to them, or hopefully quite gently and lovingly, God approves of that and God sanctions that. And in a sense, we are binding that person. And what we are saying to them is approved of in heaven. And in a similar way, if someone comes to us and says, I believe in the Lord Jesus, and uh, we say to them, if you truly believe, if you truly believe, you've put your trust in him as your saviour, your sins will be forgiven. We can, obviously, we can't see inside someone's heart, but according to their profession, we can declare them a Christian. And God approves of that, and God sanctions that. And in, in a sense, that's a kind of binding and loosing as well. So I think binding and loosing has a lot to do with church government and managing the church as good stewards. So Peter, as the rock, he had the authority to lay down doctrine, to set the boundaries of the church, to, to look after the church, to preach the gospel, to administer the church. And we, of course, we, we don't have that same apostolic authority, but we do have the word of God and the teachings of the apostles, and we ought to do that. And on that optimistic note, let us be encouraged that the church of Jesus Christ will prevail. You know, sometimes it doesn't seem like it, does it? The world seems very dark. Many people would like to see the church fail and wipe out Christianity, but it's not going to happen. Christ is building his church. When he sets out to build something, he will build it. He'll succeed. We, by grace, have been included in that community of God's people. We happily, I think with Peter, can rejoice in this confession. He is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's my saviour. 
He's glorious. He's the fairest of 10,000. We're gladly, we're proud of this, aren't we, as Christians? We're not ashamed of this. We're proud to call ourselves Christians. Proud to own the Lord Jesus. and Proud to be, confess his name and his truth in all its fullness. I know I've rushed through this tonight. You know, there's always so much to say in so little time. I could have split it into two sermons, but I hope you've taken something from it tonight. I'll be happy to answer any questions at the end. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for helping us tonight, Lord. These are difficult things, and I hope, Lord, I made it clear in some way, and I hope it's been helpful. We thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, our Saviour. We, we exhort him together. Thank you for sending him. Thank you for revealing him to us. Pray that you would do that to many more people in these days. In Jesus' name, amen.